Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. But you are now tuned into our different type of series. You're tuned into our Citation Classics. This is going to be the second one from our sports team. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be talking about femoral acetabular impingement a little bit around the hip and who we have on our team. We have Dr. Peabody, Dr. Nazal, Dr. Thorne, Tariq Saeed, and also myself, Dr. Wendell. Some people call me Cody Cole. And again, we're going to talk about kind of the most cited or highly cited articles in FAI or femoral acetabular impingement over the past 15 to 20 years or so. So if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome to the podcast. Just so you know, we also have YouTube videos that accompany these audios. If you actually want to take a look and you're more of a visual learner and you want to see things and you want to see the charts that we may be looking at, but we also try to do a pretty good job of explaining those over audio as well. So if this is your first time, welcome to the podcast. Hit the subscribe button. And if you're a welcoming or if you're a returning listener welcome back and we hope you enjoy the episode let's go ahead and hop into it you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast hello everybody and welcome back to yet another episode of the nailed it ortho podcast in particular welcome back to our citation classics the sports team is back again with another one um i'm really excited and and i'm uh, happy to get this one on the way we're talking a little bit of fai hip and it, it'll be good. Tucker and Ehab and Tyler, Tariq, how's it going? Doing well. Can't complain. Doing well. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. I will. I will. I will let. Uh, I'll let uh, Doctor Peabody here. I'll let you go ahead and, and take it by the reins. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, glad to have everyone back. It's been a, a minute since we did our previous uh, episode, but good to have everyone back. The topic we're going to talk about. Today is kind of femoral acetabular impingement and, you know, the um, use of, of hip arthroscopy um, in that setting. So um, we'll get started with the first paper here, bilateral versus unilateral hip arthroscopy, not arthroplasty, um, for femoral acetabular impingement. It was a big systematic review out of the Journal of Hip Preservation. Just a big little bit of background information, femoral acetabular impingement, FAI. Um, occurs when you know there's abnormal contact between uh, the femoral head neck area and the, and the acetabulum. Um, you know there are two common types that you'll see are your pincer types and your cam types. However, you can have like a, a combined um, your pincer type. Uh, you know what we're taught it's kind of in the the higher incidence in the female population. It's you know uh, anterior superior acetabular overgrowth, and whereas the cam lesion kind of have this. Uh, asymmetric um, kind of bulge at the femoral head neck junction uh, that's more commonly seen in males, younger athletic males, and um, both can result in any type of uh, labral or chondral injuries and uh, kind of present as a mecha mechanical hip pain. The main purpose of this study was a big systematic review and was uh, aiming to uh, look at the clinical outcomes and safety for um, bilateral, whether it was staged or simultaneous versus a unilateral hip arthroscopy of for uh, femoral acetabular impingement. So they had this big literature research. They got four um, retrospective studies and two prospective studies with a total of 722 patients. Uh, majority of them, 511 were unilateral, 144 were staged, 
and 67 were simultaneous bilaterally. They had a lot of eligibility criteria, but uh, they wanted these studies to have at least one year follow-up with uh, an appropriate comparative cohort. Uh, they excluded all types of case series and case reports. Um, they did not exclude from the types of surgeries performed in the in this setting. So surgeries range from um, arthroscopic labral repairs, cam lesion resections, pincer uh, lesion resections, uh, AIIS decompression, or any intraarticular loose bodies that were removed. So this is kind of just showing, you know, how they, you know, got their uh, their uh, studies. Um, you know, they had a pretty extensive exclusion criteria, but they ended up getting, you know, a, a large, um, even though it was only, uh, you know, six studies. You know, they had a large uh, patient population. So after the systematic review, and the big things that they found actually was, you know, there was no significant difference in clinical outcomes when comparing between unilateral staged and simultaneous bilateral. Uh, hip arthroscopy. Uh, there was no significant difference in complication rate. Um, out of those, all those patients in those studies, there was only two documented cases of like a lateral femoral cutaneous nerve palsy that both resolved uh, postoperatively. Um, simultaneous bilateral hip arthroscopy in the associated rehabilitation period can be safe um, for those that were presenting specifically with this bilateral hip pain. Um, However, you know, when we're doing simultaneous procedures, that's a larger amount of traction time that, you know, we really need to take into account when uh, doing these procedures. So in conclusion, uh, from the big systematic review, there was no difference in clinical outcomes when comparing unilateral to simultaneous bilateral um, and stage bilateral hip arthroscopy procedures. Uh, but like I said earlier, big thing is, you know, just the amount of time you're under traction and, you know, um, when your hip is subluxed for these hip arthroscopies. So you got to be aware for, you know, certain nerve palsies, lateral femoral cutaneous nerve palsy, pudendal nerve palsies from the, the pose of the table. So I thought it was interesting just because I guess when I was reading the paper, I was expecting more complications with a simultaneous bilateral procedure compared to like unilateral or staged, but the, they didn't show any difference. Yeah, that's what I would have thought too. You know, I would have thought, you know, maybe, you know, of course, it's going to be a longer operative time with the bilateral procedures. You know, you know, I would have thought there may have been an increased incidence of, you know, some nerve nerve damage um, just due to this prolonged traction, since, you know, that's one of the complications or risks with hip scopes. But I mean, yeah, I mean, no, no differences. Um, this may be a little bit more work on the surgeon. to prep. I, mean, I You know, I've never seen a bilateral hip scope, so I'm not sure if they prep out both hips at the same time or if they had to kind of take all the stuff down and redrape and pre-prep and drape the other side. So maybe an increased cost. I don't know if they looked at the cost mm -hmm. analysis or anything, but yeah, I mean, I mean, interesting. No, that'd be good to see. Yeah. There was no like any talk about like cost analysis versus the different types in the paper. And that's like another thing I was thinking, like if, you know, you're only allowed a certain number of hours, like, you know, with these hip scopes under traction before you start, you know, really running the risk of any, you know, any type of nerve palsy. And uh, so, you know, I wonder if, for those that have been done bilateral simultaneous, you know, you have to abort just because of if one takes longer than the other and you run into some, you know, complication that you weren't expecting. And so, but it, it, from the study, it sounded like, you know, they didn't really run into any of those complications. So. I think, uh, you know, we have a couple, I think, systematic reviews and meta-analyses in this discussion today. So one of the things I think to pay attention to is, 
a like what we talked about is how many studies were included like how strict their exclusion criteria is i think another thing that we saw that maybe we kind of ran over a little bit is just what types of procedures were they looking at in terms of outcomes um so they did a lot of different types of procedures right so you're not really comparing the same types of procedures um so it definitely does call into question at least makes us consider what the findings are and what the importance is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these bilateral procedures, I've never seen a bilateral hip scope, but I remember the first time like seeing bilateral, uh, like knee arthroplasties. I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't even know you could do this. So, I mean, definitely yeah. can do it. You definitely run into things. Yeah. Like prep prepping and, you know, increased time potentially leading to increased cost or complication. But I think for this, it's important to, there, I think there still needs to be some work done before there are any real conclusions drawn from this. And I think part of the limitation is just, yeah, they, they did an extensive literature search, but ultimately, I mean, they only pulled six studies. So although it was like a large number of uh, patients overall, I think there's still some limitations there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Good point. And I, I think it, it leaves there, you know, there's, you know, I think they kind of started off really large uh, in the study, but it definitely leaves room for, like you said earlier, comparing specific procedures in this setting and, you know, looking at the outcomes, you know, from that standpoint. So, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, the title of this study, this is, uh, this is, this is one of Cole here, uh, the title of this study is called hip morphology influences a pattern of damage to the acetabular cartilage and then femoral acetabular impingement as a cause of early osteoarthritis of the hip. This is a study done out of Switzerland. It was published in JBJS in 2005. And just to give a little bit of background about, you know, FAI and, and, and um, FI and impingement, just, you know, repetitive repetition is key. Um, so FAI or femoral acetabular impingement is when you have the abutment of the acetabular rim and the femoral neck. And why this is a thing or why this is important is because it leads to early degenerative hip changes in the in young adults. Uh, and so, you know, this can kind of occur on the femoral side of things as well as the acetabular side of things. So when we break this down, when you look at the femur, this can be due to an aspherical junction between the head and the neck. So this can be seen when the femoral neck is too large or some some you may see it as there's not enough wasting of the of the femoral neck, but when the, the, the that head neck junction is abnormal, and this can lead to cam impingement, where that abnormal junction drives into the acetabulum, and and leads you with anterior superior cartilage rim damage, and it also can lead you to what's called this pistol grip deformity. And I remember reading this term a lot, and I was just I didn't really know what a pistol grip deformity was, but if you look it up. It is, um, it is the, the name comes from shape of the proximal femur being reminiscent of a flintlock pistol. And then I had to look that up. And that is a, a pistol that's seen in old pirate movies. So if ever you get a chance, just go and Google flintlock pistol and you'll see where they get the, this kind of this name of a pistol grip deformity. But uh, nonetheless, so that's the femoral side of things. On the acetabular side of things, you can have acetabular impingement abnormalities. And this is when you have excessive femoral head coverage. And so that's going to be seen whenever you have acetabular retroversion, or it can also occur when you have a deep acetabulum. And what happens is the normal femoral neck impinges against the overcoming, overcovering acetabulum, which we term this impincer impingement. So you have cam impingement and then pincer impingement on the acetabular side. So the 
hypothesis of this study is they, you know, they thought that cam impingement would result in a different articular cartilage pattern uh, of, of damage that is seen in femoral acetabular overcoverage. Um, so what they did is they evaluated 302 patients that had a surgical hip dislocation and some of the exclusion criteria, they excluded patients that had uh, insufficient or incomplete radiographs in order to you know, make this diagnosis. They included patients that had um, this procedure done to uh, with a history of like has Perthes disease. And they also excluded patients that have an osteoarthritis grade greater than one, according to the Tana scale. So in total, they excluded 95 patients from those 302 patients. And so what they did is how, how they kind of classified, um, you know, the aspherical hips versus the acetabulum. And so for the aspherical hips, what they did is they, they classified it as aspherical if the head protruded out of a drawn circle on the lateral, uh, on the lateral radiographs. So if you get a lateral x-ray of the, of the hot of the thigh, you draw a circle on the femoral head, if there's still some head protrusion, and for those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can look at the slide and you can see the uh, x-rays at the bottom left that show that circle is being drawn. Part of the head is uh, protruding out of that. And so again, so that was based on a lateral radiograph. And these are patients, again, with this pistol grip deformity. And on the acetabular side of things, they classify these as retroverted, uh, profunda, as well as protrusio. And after the, uh, after the hip was dislocated, they assessed the amount of damage to the cartilage. Uh, of the femoral head as well as the acetabulum, and they also assessed the labrum. So they classified the damage to the cartilage uh, using kind of a modified um, a modified classification from Beck et al. And they described this as a normal uh, normal cartilage that had just macroscopically sound cartilage, something with malaysia. Um, you had rough, roughening of the surface when you had cartilage debonding. That's they noted that when they had loss of fixation to the subchondral bone, but it was still macroscopically sound cartilage. Uh, another one was cleavage. And this is when you have loss of fixation to the subchondral bone and you have frayed edges as well as thinning of the cartilage. And there may also be some cartilage flaps and you have a defect and that is a full thickness defect. So that's how they kind of classified these, uh, these different levels of uh, damage to the cartilage. So what they found, uh, which is interesting, and looking at all of those hips, is that they only isolated 26 patients that had a pistol grip um, cam impingement, and then there's only 16 that had an isolated pincer, de uh, pincer deformity. So the majority of patients actually had a little bit of both. But so when you look and evaluate patients that just had the cam impingement group, they noted that most of the damage, the articular damage was in the anterior superior. And they noted that the labrum was actually separated from the cartilage in all 26 of the hips. 15 of those hips had uh, anterior superior labral damage and five actually had um, posterior inferior labral ossification. And what they did is they kind of divided the, um, the location of the damage on a, on a clock face. So they, that's how they determined where the level of the damage was. And on the pincer side, they had 16 patients that had coxa profunda. And what they found was that these patients had circumferential label alterations, and 11 of them actually had osseous metaplasia. So kind of the main conclusions and discussions and things that they got from this paper is that when you have patients that have this isolated cam impingement, they have damage to the 
anterior superior articular cartilage. And this can kind of be due to an absent um, anterior lateral wasting of the femoral neck head junction. And again, wasting as far like if you think of a human waist, like actual waste, um, because again, this is due to that abnormal head neck junction. And also they notice is that these patients that have these cam impingement, the labrum still had an attachment to the bone, but the acetabular cartilage was actually torn or separated from the labrum due to this cam impingement. And on the other side of things, when you look at pincer impingement, they noted a more circumferential damage, uh, including a narrow strip of, uh, of acetabular cartilage damage. And the thought process behind this is that during flexion, the labrum acts as a bumper and is compressed between the femoral neck as well as the underlying bone. So when you have repeated uh, microtrauma, you start to get subsequent ossification and metaplasia. And they also have a contracrup um, posterior inferior lesion. I think those are all high yield test questions where the articular cartilage is, as well as the contracrup um, posterior inferior lesion. But one of the big things to note about this study, again, they started off with over 300 people. They excluded over 90-something people. And there were still only maybe, what, 20, 26 and 19 patients that had just isolated um, cam impingement and isolated pincer impingement. So pincer and cam rarely occurs in isolation. And one of the also things to note is that when you're looking on treating these patients and how you're going to uh, address them surgically, you know, if you debris the layman without debris the labrum without recognizing the underlying pathology, without recognizing that they may have a pincer impingement or cam impingement, this can lead to incomplete, you know, resolution of their symptoms and persistent symptoms. So I thought this was a good paper to see, again, where the damage occurs depending on what lesion, but also to note that, you know, the majority of patients don't have just one or the other. It's kind of a combination of the two. So you kind of have to address some of the different things. Yeah, I thought this was a good paper, kind of just going into like the you know anatomical differences of these of these two specific lesions. Um, I think like one point I wanted to make, and you kind of touched base on it one already, but you know when you when these patients undergo uh, hip arthroscopy for debridement and fixation, you know one of the most common, if not the most common, cause for persistent symptoms and repeat or revision surgeries is you know residual impingement that was not, you know, completely fixed, uh, from the primary surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. So it's always like, um, it's hard to understand when is too much, you know, when, like, what is the perfect amount? And I think that's some of the difficulties that some surgeons face. Obviously I'm not a hip trained surgeon as of, as of yet. So I don't know, but if I, <laughs> if I were to imagine, I believe that's, you know, one of the things that you have to try to balance and figure out. And just for the guys that have been in cases for uh, hip scopes, the surgeons that you guys are working with, are, are they doing them under fluoro? At least like getting their landmarks and then kind of evaluating if they like have resected enough. So I haven't, I think I may have seen maybe one or two hip scopes in residency. And I, I honestly don't remember. I think, I think so, but I, I have seen like one hip scope and I think I, I got in at like the end of the case. So I haven't seen many hip scopes where I'm at. You have a view? You know, uh, I actually have not seen a hip scope yet. We'll see during, uh, this next year is my first go at the sports rotation. So we'll see, but I guess stay tuned. Yeah. I think I, maybe I just look at the draw. I, I've been with one guy that's done. I did like three in one month and, uh, you know, you kind of get a true appreciation because they use like intra fluoro and at, like for 
they were just for like cam or pinstripe lesions and they get fluoro shots and you can at least from that perspective you can see that it's like a night and day difference of a really? section i was just curious i don't know if that was like standardized or not I, I think a lot of people do it but again i, I don't know yeah. <laughs> well let's uh let's keep it going here tyler uh, so this study looked at outcomes following hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement with associated chondral labral dysfunction. And they did it with a minimum of two year follow-up. Next slide. Yeah. So just some background, uh, FAI impingement uh, often presents with labral tears and articular cartilage injury. And there's really been two treatment options, an open surgical dislocation or arthroscopic surgery. However, there's been really like few studies describing the outcomes following arthroscopic surgery. Next slide. So the purpose of the study was to report the two-year outcomes after hip arthroscopy for FAI and associated labral and chondral pathology. And the hypothesis was that patients undergoing arthroscopy for FAI would have significantly improved function and higher satisfaction rates. For the methods, they had 209 consecutive patients who underwent the surgery and had chondral labral dysfunction, but they excluded anyone who had bilateral surgeries, AVN, prior surgery, um, or were lost to follow-up and included 112 patients and they all underwent a standardized procedure and kind of similar to what we were talking about before. Um, 86 actually had like a mixed type of impingement while 23 underwent osteoplasty for just a cam impingement versus three who went rim trimming, underwent rim trimming for a pincer impingement. And so the variables that they looked at in the study. So on the physical examination side of things, they looked at the pre and post-op uh, range of motion of the hip and also the Harris hip score. They did cross-table lateral radiographs to assess the alpha angle. Um, and an angle greater than 50 was considered positive for a cam impingement. And then continuing on the imaging, they also did an AP to assess for coxa profunda or a retroverted acetabulum. And then they considered a mixed impingement if the patient had an alpha angle greater than 50, uh, also with a retroversion or coxa profunda. And they also did a joint space measurement. If you're looking on YouTube, you can see that on this image here on the right. So the results of this study, preoperatively patients had reduced range of motion on the impacted side and the mean alpha angle was 72 degrees. A retroverted acetabulum was present in 63 hips and coxa profunda in 19. The mean follow-up was 2.3 years and the mean modified Harris hip score improved from 58 to 84 with a mean difference of 24. And the median patient satisfaction was nine on a scale of one to 10. And 10 of the patients who uh, underwent these procedures needed a total hip replacement at the mean of 16 months later. 
So the predictors of a better outcome were the preoperative modified um, Harris hip score. So having a higher one, um, joint space narrowing greater than two millimeters, or in other words, like less um, joint space narrowing and repair of a labral pathology instead of debridement. So um, just to kind of wrap things up, the factors that were associated with good outcomes were a larger preoperative joint space greater than two millimeters. And those that were under two millimeters were 39 times more likely to progress to needing a total hip replacement. And then also repair of the labral pathology had improved outcomes when compared to debridement alone. And comparing across the literature, arthroscopic versus open repair, arthroscopic surgery had greater um, Harris hip score improvement rates than open and lower rates of progression to total hip replacement progression. So hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement accompanied by rehabilitation gives good short-term outcomes and high patient satisfaction. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of people will definitely stress on are, the, are patients that have bad arthritis do not do better with, they do not do as great with, with hip scopes. And uh, that's one of the things that, you know, again, this paper is, is pointing out, like, I didn't even know the number was 30 times <laughs> more likely. Um, but, you know, I think that's also something that counsel patients about when they're undergoing a hip scope, you know, if they definitely want a hip scope and they have, you know, advanced arthritis and, and let them know, you know, these you know, this, this surgery does do as well, um, you know, especially if you have arthritis and then some other things you said, if you repair versus debris, um, you know, one of the things on this is I thought it was a, a good study and to see kind of and follow how patients do. Uh, it'd be interesting to see, you know, kind of uh, if there was like a control group, but I know that's not necessarily the, the type of study this is, but um, yeah, I mean, good review. Yeah, I agree. But like, and you know, kind of piggybacking off what you said, you know, these patients that have, you know, degenerative joint disease, when it comes to um, like hip arthroscopy, it's kind of like actually like a relative contraindication to undergoing any type of hip arthroscopy, uh, depending on how advanced your, uh, your uh, arthritis is. Awesome. So um, this is another, uh, we got a meta-analysis here. So uh, we're looking at arthroscopic hip surgery versus conservative therapy now for FAI. So this is a study that came out of um, uh, China. Um, there are a couple different institutions here. Um, so we can go ahead and get started. So just for some background, uh, Wendell kind of talked a lot about this, but essentially for FAI. So the idea here is impingement between the femur and the acetabulum during hip motion. So I just put a diagram on the right um, for those watching on YouTube, but essentially you can either have um, your cam, um, you can have a pincer, you can have your mixed deformity. Um, so this is really a common cause of non-arthritic hip pain and it uh, affects performance in young athletes. And importantly, just for long-term outcomes and long-term progression, it can be a precursor to hip osteoarthritis. So for the treatment options right now, we have conservative versus operative. And we've talked a little bit about this, but in the operative sphere, we have open versus arthroscopic. And um, while open surgery used to be kind of the gold standard, now arthroscopic hip surgery, just because of its minimally invasive nature, um, has really increased in uh, how frequently it's been performed. So over the period of 2005, 2013, had a 465% increase. Um, 
but kind of taking a step back, there's really been limited evidence just looking at outcomes between arthroscopic hip surgery and conservative management. So the objective of this article was to assess the outcome differences between arthroscopic hip surgery and conservative management for FAI by looking at, um, they tried to do extensive literature search looking at different randomized control trials. And their main focus was looking at hip-related quality of life. So their outcomes were the hip outcome score for ADLs, for the activities of daily living. They had an hip outcome score report for like a sports subscale. And then they also had the IHOP, the International Hip Outcome Tool. So for their methods, uh, so this was a meta-analysis. They used PubMed, Embase, and Cochrane. Um, they looked at randomized control trials up until the 1st of September of 2019. In terms of their inclusion criteria, they just had randomized control trials that were comparing arthroscopic hip surgery with conservative therapy. And then also for arthroscopic hip surgery, so something that we've mentioned before, but to pay attention to was really any arthroscopic procedure. For their exclusion criteria, any sort of open hip surgery, um, and then in terms of literature, any sort of things that were unpublished or, you know, reviews, editorial comments, like level fives, and then, you know, surveys or abstracts, um, on the right, they just, uh, I just included that, uh, picture from there on paper. So for the results, so after they did their initial title and abstract screening, they had 52 articles, but, um, what they actually ended up looking at were three articles. Um, that, that analyzed a total of 650 patients. Um, and their risk of bias assessment, so they did a whole extensive risk of bias assessment, but mainly the important part of this is that they had a high performance bias. What that means is that there were so many different procedures performed in each trial, and that essentially just lets us know that, hey, um, the comparison between these needs to be looked at um, uh, a little bit more critically. So that's that's the first part that they came up with. And then looking at the study comparison, so um, these were the three trials that they came up with that they were comparing. Um, so two of them for from 2018, two of them for 2019. Um, for the first one, it was a single center um, uh, parallel design, and the next two were multi-centers. Um, but again, they were all randomized control trials. Um, for their treatment strategies, um, as you can see there, they have like the different uh, types of procedures that they did. Um, so again, these were not all the same procedure. Um, and then, uh, so it went all the way from whether they were dealing with the cartilage to whether they were dealing with like the labrum, um, and then uh, included the acetabular side as well as the femoral side. And then next for the um, their sample sizes. So uh, they had a various different sample sizes. The first one was a little bit smaller, 37 in each arm, but um, uh, the the other two had over 100 in each one. And then for their follow-up, the follow-up, their minimum was six months, but um, again, it was varied between the, uh, the three studies. For the first one, you can stay right there. So for the, for the first one, um, looking at activities of daily living. So um, just by comparing the score for activities of daily living, um, this favored arthroscopic hip surgery. And then next for their uh, sports subscale, um, they saw that the arthroscopic hip surgery really didn't have any effect on improving the sports function compared with conservative care. Um, yeah, so the arthroscopic hip surgery was equivalent to conservative management. And then lastly, for the hip quality of life, 
they did actually find that the arthroscopic hip surgery improved the quality of life. So it favored arthroscopic hip surgery compared with conservative management. So for their discussion and conclusions, overall, arthroscopic hip surgery for FAI led to better patient-assessed function in daily life activities and improved quality of life. Um, however, neither uh, arthroscopic hip surgery nor conservative therapy was superior for improvement in sports-related activities. In terms of strengths for this paper, so this paper was the first meta-analysis to compare arthroscopic hip surgery, conservative therapy, and FAI, according to... Um, the authors, but again, really this big weakness. So first of all, um, what they said their big weakness was, which I agree with, was the heterogeneity of treatment in both conservative and arthroscopic hip surgery. And then again, I mean, I know that the literature is limited here, but uh, just from my own reading and my own interpretation, looking at three studies, although they are randomized control trials, it's tough to really make any sort of specific um, conclusions from this. But I do think that it gives us a good sense and gives us a good foundation um, for future studies. And in terms of future directions, um, increasing the sample size of these randomized control trials, and again, just having more homogenous treatment strategies. Um, and then also something that I would like to see is just factoring in baseline characteristics. So we've talked about some of these already. So people who are younger athletes, um, you know, looking at gender differences, uh, looking at preoperative radiographic findings, things that we've talked about so far in our discussion that I think are important considerations, because ultimately we need to figure out what our uh, treatment regimen is going to be and whether we can, you know, get away with a conservative therapy with uh, appropriate patient outcomes, or if we need to start considering surgery sooner. Um, so I think that, that, that this paper really did do a good job of it, but I think it just gave us um, the stepping stones for further studies. Yeah, I think you touched on um, on some some good points there, uh, especially with the weaknesses. I was something I was going to bring up too, but yeah, you know, I think it'd be better, obviously, if there was you know just one you know treatment option and more uh, homogenous treatment strategies, just like you said, and also look at other things like like BMI or other comorbidities. You know, if any of that has a chance or has a role um, in the different treatment and how these patients do as far as, you know, outcomes are concerned. But no, I agree with you. I think this gives kind of a big, good baseline as to um, as to where we can kind of go with some more studies in the future. Definitely. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. And that's kind of one of the reasons why, you know, we kind of landed on this topic to discuss is, and you already touched earlier, uh, just like the how much this procedure has increased. And that was from 2005 to 2013. So even these, the following nine years, I'm sure it's increased at a similar, if not higher rate. Um, so it's, it's becoming more prominent, you know, in our practice, but you know, the, the research out there is limited. So yeah, it, uh, I agree with what Wendell said. It's serves as a stepping stone for, you know, a bunch of other studies and especially comparing, you know, procedure specific, um, studies. So overall, I mean, it kind of stinks that it was only three uh, studies, but um, I think it was, it put a lot into prospect of, you know, what, what we can do further on um, for FAI and hip studies. So moving on, um, Tariq. Yeah. Um, so last presentation, but 10-year outcomes after hip arthroscopy in patients with FAI and borderline dysplasia. This is a study out of Vail, Colorado, uh, published in American Journal of Sports Medicine this year, actually. 
So some of the background on this, uh, I feel like my seniors have done a pretty good job of already discussing FAI and what it is. So I'll talk about some of the background for the literature. Um, but essentially, in this study, they've noted that you know, hip arthroscopy has these favorable long-term outcomes in treatment of intraarticular pathologies, whether that's FAI, uh, labral tears, or other chondral defects. Um, but when they start looking at patients with borderline dysplasia additionally in the hip, um, there's some controversy as to whether or not they should be doing hip arthroscopies or a periacetabular osteotomy. Um, and they've noted in studies like Tyler's, the favorable outcomes for short to midterm results are already present um, in pa treating patients with FAI and borderline dysplasia. So the purpose of the study was this minimum, at least 10 years follow-up in arthroscopic treatment for FAI and hips with borderline dysplasia. Um, and they hypothesized that they find uh, significantly improved outcomes from patients um, pre-operative status to post-operative. And so they use this PASS um, system, which is just a, um, it's, I think it was initially derived for osteoarthritis, but essentially patients saying that they're, they're satisfied with their treatment, they're satisfied with their symptoms post-operatively. And so you can see the cam and pincer impingement as well um, that we've talked about pretty extensively already. So some of the methods for this, um, they, this is a case series study where they evaluated these arthroscopies led by their senior author actually, um, in any patients with FAI and borderline hip dysplasia um, from 2006 to 2009. Um, so this study probably finished getting data just a couple of years back now. Um, and so inclusion criteria was uh, LCEA, which is the lateral central edge angle, had to be from 20 degrees to 25 degrees. And that's how they defined borderline dysplasia. And so that's a measurement from the center of the femoral head um, along the longitudinal axis of the pelvis, and then I believe also the lateral edge of the acetabulum. Um, and then additionally, they had to have primary hip arthroscopies for the FAI diagnosis, and then pretty wide age range, um, 18 to 70. Um, and then exclusion criteria, they used anyone that had previous hip surgery was out, um, anyone that had really bad osteoarthritis, tonus grade three was out, and then avascular necrosis or hip fractures. And so this study actually started with about 1,700 patients, and they essentially boiled it down to 39 or 38. Um, and then additionally, they did some diagnosis intraoperatively and preoperatively um, to make sure that they could use these patients. So the CAM was diagnosed uh, radiographically, if the alpha angle is greater than 55, and then pincer was diagnosed uh, looking at the crossover sign in the acetabulum. So you can see the where the red and blue lines in the far right x-ray um, cross, it's the acetabulum being sort of retroverted, the posterior over the anterior portions um, compared to the normal acetabulum on the left side. Um, so they did x-rays and MRIs if necessary and the rest was arthroscopic. And so they ended up with about 38 patients um, and 24% of them ended up requiring 
uh, total hip arthroplasty uh, conversion, which immediately took them out of this Kaplan-Meier survivorship that they uh, criteria that they were using to evaluate outcomes as well. Um, survivorship literally meant if whether or not they had to be converted. If they were continued on as arthroscopic primary arthroscopic repair, then um, that was they survived essentially. Um, and then one of their other main results was that the preoperative scoring that they performed on anyone um, in their study didn't actually demonstrate any significant differences in these quality of life um, scales. So you could see at the bottom table, um, the, or sorry, at the top table, my bad, um, the modified Harris hip score, the activities daily living and the sports scores were all insignificantly different from each other um, in actually all three groups. And then below that is the table that demonstrates, demonstrated their primary outcome, the pass, and then they additionally used something called MCID, the minimal clinically important differences, and also found um, about 80% of their patients were MCID passing um, in those that did not convert or require revision arthroscopy. And then additionally, they discussed quite a bit about four factors that they found that were significantly associated with this conversion to THA, um, which they discussed was in line with previous studies, um, which we've actually talked about in Tyler's study. And so age was a big factor. If they were over 40, they were more significantly uh, likely to convert. And then a lot of these osteoarthritic changes. So tonus grade two, which was more of a moderate um, osteoarthritis compared to the tonus grade three that was excluded, had seven and a half times odds uh, that they would convert. Um, Tonus angle greater than 15, which is also a way to measure osteoarthritis, had nine and a half times odds. And then level of degenerative changes, as well as chondral injuries with microfractures. And so they spe specified that the grade four was 17 times more likely. Um, so uh, in conclusion, the main, per the main thing that this study kind of gives us is that anyone, uh, that is undergoing hip arthroscopy that has FAI and borderline dysplasia, um, and additionally has advanced age and degenerative changes, those practitioners, those surgeons should be aware of the possibility for converting to a THA um, and anticipated. Um, they did see though, fortunately, that at least 80% of their patients that did not have conversion maintain this MCID and 70% had this pass rate. Um, so really just showing that if you select the right patient population, you know, the surgery works really well um, and patients are satisfied. There's quite a few limitations for this study, though. Um, since it's case series, there's not really a control that they could compare against. Um, then there's a selection bias where the senior author was deciding treatment procedures back in 2006, 2009. Um, their definition of dysplasia of L, the lateral center edge angle of 20 to 25 degrees might not be accepted by everyone. And then they didn't really look at how much osteoarthritis had progressed at 10 years either. Um, and lastly, it was a pretty small study population, only 38 patients. 
in the study. So they couldn't do any multivariate analysis with um, looking at the mix of different osteoarthritic changes or um, CAM versus pincers, stuff like that. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point with the limitations of the study. I think one particular that I was going to mention too, if you, if you didn't, was just their their definition of dysplasia and then the use of the term of like borderline dysplasia. Um, you know, acetabular dysplasia is is kind of a, is a relative contraindication to performing any type of hip arthroscopy um, for reasons I'm not 100% sure on. That's just kind of what the, the literature says. So I think this kind of definition based off of one um, radiographic angles just, I don't know, I thought like it was a little bit more incomplete. So uh, does anyone have any other thoughts? No, I think, you know, I think y'all made some um, pretty good points. Um, I don't necessarily have much to add per se to this. I mean, Jerry, you know, did a good job at talking about some of the limitations and um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have much else to add. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a pretty simple definition. Um, yeah, I wonder how many people would agree with it, to be honest. Yeah, we'll find out. I'm, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I think the big, the big takeaway from all these papers is, um, you know, just to shed light on uh, the very limited research that's out there in regards to, to FAI and, and hip arthroscopy in general. So I think it, you know, kind of acts as a stepping stone to, you know, for us, you know, there's a, a lot more room for, for research and literature publication um, in regards to, to these topics. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a relatively newer field. I think one of the slides was even showing that from what 2005 to 13, it was over 465% increase in hip arthroscopy, you know? Um, so I think we still have a lot to learn. Um, you know, it seems like patient selection is a big part of uh, of hip arthroscopy and, and getting better outcomes is choosing the correct patients to uh, to operate on. Um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think uh, I think that'll that'll be it for this episode of our sports citation classics. Um, I think it was great. We talked about a good amount of stuff. We talked uh, a lot about obviously hip arthroscopy, but a lot of talked about a couple of different meta-analysis papers. We um, talked about some other kind of, you know, re uh, retrospective papers, uh, prospective papers. So um, this was a great episode. I uh, enjoyed talking with you all. I'm looking forward to seeing what the next episode will be, whatever we'll talk about next, some more sports stuff. And, uh, you know, until next time, everybody.